I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to and led me to the cross and I beheld God's love displayed you suffered in my place you bore the wrath reserved for me now all I know is grace Song forever be my only boy. 
join me in prayer. Father, we come now to the time of our service to open your word. We ask, Lord, for you through your Holy Spirit in us and uh, to open our eyes and our minds to hear your word this morning. And as we hear it, that it would impact our lives uh, in such a way as to, to strengthen our walk, Lord, with you, to strengthen our witness to the community around us, and to strengthen our community together as a, as a group of believers. And Father, we commit this time again to you, asking you to uh, cause us to be able to set aside the distractions and to just really focus for, for this time right now. Uh, on you and your word and uh, what you would have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Looking at Romans chapter 13 this morning. And uh, I probably have, you know, the first seven verses, I've gone over this 16 different ways in the thought of how I will present it, because I have to confess that part of it runs against my grain, if you will, in the sense of the flesh, and uh, uh, it makes it difficult, because uh, I was raised, as many as you well might have been as uh, also raised in a, a very political family who had very uh, strong opinions about uh, right, left, and in between and, and uh, uh, what were appropriate ways and laws and, and, and what should and shouldn't be a law and all of these kinds of things and uh, resulting in the fact that I uh, came out of that equally opinionated and, and, not, and I want to be sure you understand, not really ashamed of the fact of, of, of what it is that I hold as, as right and wrong before me in the sense of, of political agendas and stuff, but to say that there is an other side to looking at how we respond to our government that we as Christians frequently uh, would choose to ignore if we could, and maybe sometimes or even frequently do. And, that's, and it comes from this passage in Romans chapter 13. So let's look at it together as we read it. And then uh, we'll discuss it. Paul writes, verse 1, chapter 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists God, uh, resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pray to, pay to all 
what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. I titled the, the sermon, again, several different ways before I came to this one. And this one I stole, uh, or borrowed, excuse me, uh, from a, uh, a message delivered uh, pre-Revolutionary War by uh, Jonathan May, uh, Mayhew. And uh, he, it's called, he used the phrase frequently in this message, conscientious submission. Now, I'm, I'm familiar, and I'm sure you are, with the term conscientious objector, okay? But, uh, and, and those of you who are old enough to have been in the 60s in here uh, are really familiar with the term conscientious objector. And uh, so we, we turn around and say, what, what's this conscientious submission? And the other term that I found uh, that went from this to an, uh, another's was uh, conscientious subjection. But uh, I stuck with this one. And so keep that in mind, that the, the, the theme that, that Paul is, is outlining here is that we as Christians are making a conscientious choice to submit to authority, or at least we're supposed to be. Okay, keep that in mind as we get into this. Because... Christianity and government at all levels is often at odds with each other. And I just put, you know, in my notes here, why? <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> it would be hard for me to put before you a list of things that you would eat. Most of you, at least, would be nodding your head out, if not all of you, in reference to things that... We see the government is doing, has done, or, or is planning to do that we're shaking our head at, you know, uh, whether it's, it's, you know, ridiculous kind of spending. I mean, I have to say, to my opinion, a, a high-speed railway from L.A. to Bakersfield area just doesn't make sense to me. But, you know, uh, it's, still in the, it's still something that even with the economy the way it is, it's still got planning going on. And I thought... Just even with the planning, do you realize how much that costs? And I get my anger up and my fiscal responsibility context of the way I look at it, at least, takes a hold of me. And certainly we can get far more involved in, uh, in our uh, attitudes and frustrations with the government when we look at various laws, even recently, that have uh, gone the way of what we would have to say against God and against God's word. So we are at odds frequently with the secular government. But you notice how I qualified that. The secular government. The, the government doesn't proclaim to be a Christian organization. It doesn't proclaim to, to hold strictly to Christian values. And uh, it, it states, in fact, very uh, emphatically at this point in time in our culture it's separation from that. So I shouldn't be surprised because our culture as a whole is in that position as well. And so as I look around, I, I realize that we're in a time, I'm cautious how I use certain phrases because they've got so many definitions out there for them 
But if I say we're in a post-Christian culture, someone's going to say, well, we are or we aren't based on this or that. Uh, and one side of the argument, you could never possibly be in a post-Christian culture because God is sovereign at all times. That makes sense to me. But the other side of it is to look at the reality that we, our culture is, is generations removed in, some, in, a, some, in a way of looking at it from uh, where Christianity was looked to in our culture as a way of, of family values and cultural values, looking to the word of God to direct and guide and influence as a whole. I mean, there was a time when, when the Bible was used uh, in uh, books that children were learning to read in in public schools. I have a book that was my uh, grandfather's. Now, he, he started teaching school in 1898. This was a school that was his in his grammar school years. And uh, it has all sorts of verses used in it as almost like, uh, you know, you know you do, you, the, uh, proverbs and, and things like this to be used as kids were learning to, you, to learn to read. And so as they were learning to read, they were learning to read scripture, and it was not uncommon. Okay, that is against the law today. So obviously we've changed in some way as to how we view Christianity in the culture that we're in today. And in some ways, uh, uh, an acquaintance of mine, Les Christie, used the, the phrase, the first time I really heard it where I could understand it in a sense, uh, was uh, a number of years ago at a, a education conference where he was one of the speakers. And Les commented, he said, you know, post-Christian is at the point where we want to hold on to, in some ways, the, the, some of the key values, i.e., we, we don't believe in murder, we don't believe in, in thie, stealing, we don't believe, and yet, you know, those, and those were things of our, and he was speaking at this time, would be his grandfathers, some of yours great-grandfathers, and yet, systematically through the years, we've stepped away from the, the holding to the Bible as the source of those uh, the groundwork, if you will, for those uh, morals. And so we, we would say back in the 1880s, 1890s, the turn of the century possibly to this, and saying God's word says it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to... And today we just say the law says. So in that kind of a way, we are in a post-Christian culture compared to that, that time. So we have what we call very clearly a secular government. Um... There's a various reasons why the government looks at, at, at Christians, if you will, uh, sometimes negatively. And normally it's because we hold to an absolute set of values. We say there are certain things that God's word says and we must stand by those things. And so we come into uh, opposition, if you will, to certain things that the government wants to do or says that, you know, that is right. We'll turn around and say it's wrong. And all of a sudden, we're finding ourselves even in conflict. We look at this and I say, how do we fit into this, this chapter now? How do we fit into this series of verses? You know, the government says this. I believe this. This is what God's word says. And, and, and yet I'm supposed to be in subjection. How, you know, and, and how do we do this? And I want to suggest to you that this is nothing new. And it was going on at Paul's time. 
Who was the emperor when Paul was writing? Nero. Okay, you can't get any more out of bounds and outer limits, if you will, with a man's, uh, the way he thought and everything else uh, than that. There were certainly some more, uh, I would say, uh, graphically violent emperors than him, but uh, he was certainly way out. And Paul is, is, is aware of, of what is going on and what is coming in the way of persecution, and yet he's coming up with this idea of submission to government. And so I thought, again, how do we come about and say we see all of the things that, that, that government can get involved in and sometimes even become head up in, in the sense of even the persecution. At the time that Paul was writing this, Nero had banned the Jews from Rome because Rome considered as, uh, the, the Christians basically as a cult of the Jewish people, they, they basically included the, the Christians in that as well. And yet he says, be subject to the government authorities. By the way, you notice he says all people are to be subject. He, he, I believe that his intent here is believers and unbelievers. In other words, it, this is a given principle of God for the world, you know, in a sense. Uh, we are to be in submission to authority, to the government authority. And so I'm looking at this word and saying, is there anything I can get from the words that he's using here to give me help? Because, uh, again, it's this, this becomes difficult for me. Well, one thing is to look at the word to be in subjection here, the word subject, uh, to subject. It does imply, by the way, the word obedience. It is part of the meaning of this word. But there's more. To be in submission, to be subordinate to, to submit one's self to. If I am to be subordinate, there, there, the word implies a responsibility on me to choose to do it. Paul's not saying just be obedient here. He's saying something much, much more. Christians are to have an attitude, a character a, 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 of, of cooperation to, uh, to give a sense of, as it says at the end of this, a sense of respect and honor to those who have rank over us and to be in submission to that voluntarily, in a sense. We don't have to be coerced into it. We don't have to be dragged into it. And I immediately thought of the military context of something like that. I, I have not been in the military. Uh, I come out of a, a family who, uh, especially my, my stepdad, who was a uh, retired master sergeant, drill sergeant from the Marine Corps, and I certainly got my heads up on things about military. Uh, and the one thing I knew was something that he had actually told me, which I thought was interesting, because I was looking to go into the Navy uh, as soon as I got out of, of college, and uh, that would have been 1973. And uh, I was already signed up. And he was, a, a, to say the least, a little disappointed 
his son going into the Navy and him being a Marine. And the program that I was going into was, was uh, Navy Air, which would have took, taken me to Pensacola, Florida for all my training and stuff. And, and uh, he uh, informed me. He says, you realize, he said, that your drill sergeants are all going to be Marines. And I said, huh? <laughs> I mean, I grew up with one of these. <laughs> and he says, yeah, they're all going to be Marines. And I said, he says that they are going to run you ragged. They are going to run you through the ringer, probably more so than they would their own men. Because, he says, at the end, guess what they have to do when you graduate? They have to salute you as an officer. And he said, they're going to get theirs before they get there. <laughs> And I thought, though, as soon as that, isn't that an interesting thing? They could, you know, as soon as that rank occurs, there was a, un, uh, no ifs or buts about it, a salute, okay? Now, the thing is, is that you could say, possibly in a lot of soldiers, that would, would be, in a sense, coerced because of the response that if you are not willing to salute, if you have an attitude of insubordination, what happens to you? You get to spend a lot of time in the brig, uh, you know. But uh, uh, my my dad would would have told you the best soldier was the the one who saw the importance of the the order of command and how critical that was in the especially in the battlefield. And the more I thought about that. It also bothered me because I'm trying to figure out why is it that God has put the order of command and things within the framework of the Christian life having to do with a government might, that might be absolutely opposed to him. And tell me explicitly to be in submission to it. Well, wait a minute. We've got an out. We've got an out. It, it talks about the government being responsible for good and bad and, 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 and doing the right things and being the arm of God and judgment and all this kind of... Therefore, if the government's not doing that, we can be against it. That is not what it says. While it does make those comments, that's what God would have out of government when government's operating correctly. But when Paul was writing this, there weren't any of those around. And he was still talking about and writing to the Romans, there is a need to be in submission at, you know, and, and how to do it. And here he's, he's defining one of the areas, being submission to the authorities. And how many, of the, how many people in government, I thought, well, how can you tell which ones to be in submission to? How many of them do you know to be in submission to? He, he explains it. Read it carefully. The ones that are in power, he has what? Ordained. Okay, I just want to set this stage. There's no way we're going to get out from underneath this. So we're going to have to wrestle with it. And I've already taken another approach to where I was with my notes because it's so hard to get a hold of for me. Maybe, maybe there's someone in here that should be sharing this instead of me because you've got it. I even wrote in one place in my notes, I've got it, but I still don't understand. 
<laughs> you know, I, I, I get what it says, but I just don't understand why. One of the things that, uh, the consequences, there is a set of things that we look at here. Um, Paul makes it understandable that there's a set of things that, that are a result of us doing this, uh, being, subject to, being in subjection to the authorities. He says, uh, whoever resists the authorities does what? Resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So there's one reason right there to be in submission. To incur judgment means to incur the consequences of, we'll just put it in a simple form, the consequences of the law. Now, I can see that on a, on a simple basis. I'm going 82 miles an hour down the freeway and a 55-mile-an-hour zone uh, uh, you know, between here and, and, and uh, Santa Rosa. Or, for that matter, I could be going 65 miles an hour on a four-lane freeway between here and uh, Santa Rosa and, and be uh, breaking the law because there's a whole section of that four-lane road that's actually 50 mi 55 miles an hour. How do I know that? I just thought it was 65 when it was four lane. I just, I was, the, the officer was very nice. He did not write me a ticket. Uh, he just pulled me over to tell me. He says, you realize this is a 55 mile an hour zone. There's no, no sign change here. You went from 55 two lane to 55 four lane here. I thought that was very nice of him. Because normally when I see the, the lights turning on behind me, I feel pretty safe because I'm, I try to be within the framework of the law. And so it kind of startled me when it was me he was pulling over. There's a sense of fear that keeps us in line. You have breaking the law, the consequences of the law. There's that natural tendency part of it. What keeps your children in line early age before they're really reasoning about what's morally right and wrong and obeying and disobeying and understanding the submission order of things that God has given, uh, they know that they are in subjection to you. Why? <laughs> the Board of Education. There's an old-timer for you. Uh, by the way, it shouldn't be such an old philosophy and, as, as it is, but uh, uh, the Board of Education, I think everybody laughed enough to know that what he was talking about was the fact that, that we have the paddle. Um, more than that, it's just that they know we've got the authority. We can make them sit in the corner. We can make them go to bed. We can make them lay down. We can... And, 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 of course, you can end up with a kid that says, I'm sitting down here, but I'm standing on the inside. Uh, and, and my mother would tell you that she knew one. Um, but the reality is, is that our children initially learn the right and wrong. When my daughter started running around the house, we had to decide, were we going to child-proof everything? Now, we did put those little clips in the plugs. There was good reason for that because if she was anything like me, she was going to experiment. And I took what I called my pins, which were bobby pins, and they're perfect for inserting into a socket because they have the little way they divide at the end so you can separate them for the hair. And so as soon as you push them onto the, the, the ridge between the, the, the two openings, they slide right in. 
And you know what happens when, that, when you do that? The wall moves. <laughs> and guess what? To show you how slow I was, I had to see if it worked in both the ways. Brad's go over there going, yeah, I think I can see that. Um, but the reality is, is that when my daughter, we said, okay, what are we going to do? Well, here's the stereo, here's the, the TV, here's all the knobs. You know, she's not supposed to adjust those things. And back then, you didn't have the menu you could go back to and just push reset. You know, if she got a hold of the, the green tint or the yellow tint or whatever it was, it was gone, and it would be hours possibly resetting this thing. You know, so the idea was, you know, she can't touch these. And, and I can remember to this day, she'd go up to it, she'd go like this, and then she'd look. And she's looking right at me. No. Okay. Next day, take one step, she got it. Okay. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. She was quick. She got it. And, but she didn't get it because it was a moral right or wrong or, or a, a really voluntary thing. She'd love to push those knobs. She did it because she didn't want to incur judgment. Paul says there's one reason right here not to, to you don't want to incur the judgment, okay? So that part of it's there. Uh, for rulers, are, you know, but, but we don't want to incur judgment. And then he says... Uh, the other idea is, is, is where we get down to the, the part where he says, uh, to avoid God's wrath, yes, verse 5, but also for the sake of conscience. We, there's an, we're, we're above and beyond that. And Paul says this is where we as believers are supposed to be. Our conscience, our, our, it, it, Paul says we all have one. Go back to Romans chapter 2, verse 15. It, 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 it's either accusing us or, or it's uh, 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 excusing us, one, one or the other, you know. And sometimes we use it to justify things if we've got it corrupted enough. Uh, but the idea is that it's there and our conscience is what guides our moral aptitude, if you will. So it, we could say this is us acting from the heart from the inside out, um, yeah, just getting that idea of, of uh, uh, how you know, God is, you know, we, we can reason with, with the idea of saying, we do this because we love God. This is what God would have us do. And so he's telling us. So part of my obedience, even if I don't understand it completely, I can still, with a conscience, say, but I know this is the right thing to do, and I'm going to do it because God said it's the right thing to do. By the way, that gives me a step ahead of a lot of things. I've got, I've got more than one person who has, has sat down, even from a Christian perspective, trying to tell me uh, how to do certain things uh, that I could... Well, I'll give you one. I was told by a Christian person who was involved in an authority position uh, to, uh, when I first had uh, uh, injured my back and uh, had lost the use of one, uh, one of my legs and was uh, having problems with my other. And uh, they did that, uh, a, a very quick surgery, got into the spinal column, cleared out the stuff that was pinning my spinal cord, and man, 
obviously gave them back to me. Uh, and, and all in a matter of a, just a couple of weeks we, that transpired, you know, and it was, but I was laid up. Uh, while I was in the hospital, the uh, position that I was uh, being offered for, for, for pay uh, to do had been given to someone else because they couldn't wait for my recovery time. Uh, and so I'm, I, the first thing I find as I get out of, uh, uh, coming out of recovery is, is the, the, my, what would have been my employer sitting there saying, gee, I'm really sorry, Bob, but we had to give this job to someone else. So I'm going to be, I'm sitting here unemployed, not really sure whether my insurance is going to even pay for this, you know, because it, it's, it's tied to a previous injury before I got the insurance. And uh, my, uh, an insurance person and a social worker telling me how to fix the problem. Sign my house over to my daughter. I have a piece of property that was, we were saving for retirement uh, at the time. They said, sign that over to your son. You can only have one car if you're on welfare, so get rid of your other car. And you'll have to get rid of the nice one because you can only, your car can be only worth so much. And then any money you have in the bank, put in a trust to your, to, uh, in, in, to your kids out of your name. And then you'll qualify for government insurance. I can't answer that question for you as to whether that's right or wrong. You're going to have to wrestle with that and lay it before the altar of God on your own conscience, but it wouldn't work for me. And uh, the reason why it didn't work for me was that my conscience was already convicted about this area. Even though I don't know why and understand it thoroughly, I'm already committed to a way of action. I submit to the authorities, and if I have to sign a paper that says I did this and I don't have this anymore, even though I really do, I'd be what? Lying, cheating, perjuring myself? We're called to a sense of integrity that the rest of the world's not called to. And it doesn't matter whether the government's doing the right thing, the wrong thing, or the indifferent thing. We have a sense of integrity to be to be honest and doing things, you know, even if I disagree with the law in the sense of taxation, for instance. I think it's an appalling thing. This is how I'm getting really, I'll you know, be careful here that I don't get too off the, the side. But I think it's, it's, an, it's a pretty appalling thing that you can be in the state of California and because you have a certain amount of income, when you add the federal government and, and, and state government taxes together, that you'll be paying 63% of your income before you even buy anything and pay any sales tax, luxury tax, or any other tax. That just doesn't seem right to me. But I know I would have to write the check accordingly to what was true. In other words, I, 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 you know, the, the temptation is to say, well, I can fudge here, I can bend this, I can squeeze this, but then could I really stand, let's say I'm audited, can I stand with integrity in the audit, audit, audit at that point? That's not only important to me, but it's important to God. 
And when I started to catch part of this, I realized this whole thing has to do with my relationship with God. If I am not being in integrity with these things that he's told me specifically, and that my conscience isn't moving in such a way that I'm a willing participant in doing what he's asked me to do, even though I may not fully understand it, it stands between him and I and our relationship. And so I realize at that point, okay, I'm getting a little bit more of this. God, God's not so worried about how I, quite candidly, I, I don't think he's worried so much how, as to, to whether I get along with the current administration or the previous administration as far as how I feel about them politically, this type of thing, as much as he's concerned about me understanding that God has put in the framework of the world and in the framework of his kingdom and the framework of his Godhead an order of things. It tells me in 1 Corinthians that even Jesus, who is equal with God, is subject to God, the Father. And that we're subject to him. And wives, you're subject to your husbands. It has nothing to do with equalities. There's an order that God has put to things in reference to subjection and with submission and how it works. To have a clear conscience in reference to the things around me and the government, I need to be in a right framework of relationship with them. In fact, it, it, it goes back to even to this point of, of uh, you know, some people say that, that uh, this section of Scripture is kind of an out-of-place thought process for Paul. It's kind of just kind of dropped in there. They, don't, they, they look at it as almost like a parenthesis. Oh, by the way, I just thought of this you know, type of thing. But I'm thinking, wait a minute, we've got a Holy Spirit involved here too. <laughs> so, and, and, and part of, and I realize, going clear back to chapter 12, verse 1, where we started this whole picture of what Christians are to be like, when I offer myself as a living sacrifice, this is one of the things that comes into play. I am to be subject as a child of God, sacrificially living in his order and his sovereignty, giving myself over to him, to be obedient to the law of the land. Going back on earlier in this, as much as possible is up to me to be at peace. And not only that, but as I kind of alluded to, I'm also called very clearly at the end to support them through taxes. And as much as I think 63% would be outrageous, the taxes in various areas at the time that Paul wrote this was whatever the tax collector could get from you. He was assigned to collect this much, but that's what he had to turn over. That's why the tax collectors were so hated by the, the, the Jewish people. They didn't only take what Caesar demanded. They took whatever they could get in addition to line their pockets. That's how they made their living. And some of them got very rich at it. And so that they became a very hated group among the Hebrew people. Jewish 
tax collectors for the nation or the, 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 uh, the, the Roman Empire. But Jesus set the stage, didn't he? When asked about taxes, both in, in Matthew 22 and Mark 12, Jesus said very clearly, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. God has told me, this is what is, through the, the powers that be, this is what's Caesar's. So I go through all of this and I say, still, but. Is there ever a time where, using the, the, the nice phrase I think that I can come up with, a time for civil disobedience, meaning disobeying the civil government, the civil authority, from a Christian perspective? And the answer I already know, and many of you do too. There is a time. If you're familiar with Acts, chapter 4 and 5, Peter and John, I won't go into all the details, but, but both in chapter 4 and chapter 5, uh, Peter and John were told, we, you know, in chapter 4, they were arrested, and, and the, the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin, by the way, who had co convicted Jesus if, and, and turned him over to Pilate, Okay, uh, said, you know, you are not to preach about this Christ, this Jesus, well, they didn't say Christ, they said, this Jesus guy, period. You're not to do it. Now, if we release you, you're not to do this. And before they were released, they stood there and said, not shaking their fist, but just simply said, you must do what you, basically, I'll paraphrase, you've got to do what you've got to do as you perceive it, but we have to be obedient to God first. And in this case, God tells us that we are to preach the gospel, and that comes ahead of our position with the, of the laws of man. And so we're going to do this. There's a point where what he's saying, and by the way, in, in chapter 5, when they, were, when they were brought back again, the guys are saying, we thought we told you not to do this. And they said again, you know, the laws of man do not override the laws of God. Where the laws of God speak clearly, we have to be obedient. And so, I mean, they went through beatings and stuff to, to, because of this. Uh, ultimately, all of them except John were martyred over this. In one you know, form or another of government uh, not being popular with the the powers that be. And I'm trying to put it together in my mind, and I realized even in the midst of this, when I read all of Paul as well as what he talks about in the sense of, of the things he went through, all the way through there, there's, ne there, there's one thing that's going on in the midst of, of, of being in a civil disobedient position of proclaiming the gospel when the civil authority said no because they're convinced Appropriately so, God has said, I have to stand where the word of God stands. I have to draw that line. Do whatever you must do. This is what we must do. When the uh, civil authority decided what they must do, they did not raise their fist. They did not raise picket lines. 
They did not raise the lawyers. They did not. Paul, yes, claimed his Roman citizenship at one point, but that had, he was well within the means of the law. He didn't do it out of spite. He did it out of, out of what was the direct thing to do to get into where? Rome. Okay, so in every case, there was still a spirit of submission. Of You're in control in this sense, this far. Knowing full well that in the overall picture, in God's sovereignty, these people will be held accountable for the way they used the things that God gave them and their authority. They're going to be held accountable. So I sit back and, I, and you rest with that picture. And, and I realize, gosh, you know where the number one example is for all of this? It's Jesus. It's obvious that Jesus wrestled in various ways with the civil authorities and the religious authorities that were in positions over him, but never in the sense of, of drawing the crowd to disrespect or, or dishonor. Or, you know what I mean? It, it was always with the sense of, this is what God's word says and I'm teaching you. This is what it says. And, and, and yet always in a line with, with what was going on around him as far as finally in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he do with his hands when they come to arrest him? Does he go like this? Does he go like this? He goes like this. He submits. He has a spirit of submission. Why? Because he knows a sovereign God is in control even of this. Now, we might say, well, Paul, uh, Jesus knew that he was doing this because he was going to sacrifice. I, I still, there's that spirit of, of, of being in submission that is here. The only area where you even see a glimmer of, of challenge to this is when uh, Pilate speaks to Jesus in John 19 and says, you know, don't you know I'm in charge here? And Jesus says, you have no authority, but that, that it has been what? Given to you by God. This is God-given authority still. That's what he said to Pilate. You're not in control. My father is. Jesus wasn't saying he's in control. No, he's in submission to the father. And, and, and from the garden, we see very clearly, in submission to God's plan, here. But you're not in control any more than my father allows. And if it were to mean my life, that's not a problem for me. Do you realize how many martyrs went to their death with that attitude of passive submission? That's why the book of martyrs is so amazing to read. If you've never read it, you should. It's an amazing thing to read how when they were arrested, they, they, they went along peacefully. When they went into the arenas to be murdered in various and sundry ways, they went peacefully, even singing, because they went with a confidence that even though these people have the physical authority here on earth, God-given, and abusing it and using it wrong, 
I, my father is sovereign over this. And he's already promised me something above this and beyond this. And I can rest with confidence in his grace. Now, there's a few other examples of, if you will, civil disobedience. Three men in the book of Daniel refusing to bow down. Daniel refusing to pray to an idol and praying to his own God. Chapter 3, chapter 6. We know the stories well. Kids that are never, people that have never been to church even know those stories in some cases. You know, and so we see, well, but notice their submission at the same time. They weren't rebellious in the process. They just said, no, we can't do this. Therefore, you do what you must do. We must stand here. So is there room for civil disobedience? Absolutely. How do I know when? I can't tell you in every instance. All I can tell you is it's going to be a matter of conscience. And when it's a matter of conscience, it means understanding and how you perceive God's word and what God is doing with you. And I tell people you have to be able to lay it on the altar before God and be able to walk away with confidence that he's received it. Is there some general things that I can say? I already said some of them. <laughs> okay? But there may be times. For instance, we use the phrase conscientious objector. Is it possible to be a conscientious objector to the call of your government to uh, raise arms against another nation or an another people. And I have to tell you, I believe that it is possible. Do I have to agree with it to make that, per the, that that person's right or wrong in his choice of, of at that point? No, he has to stand before God with that. I'm, not, I'm really not into judging those those people. Now, I know a bunch of people who use conscientious objector had nothing to do with faith and religion. Okay, I'm not talking about that because they have to. Well, I am. They have to lay it on the altar before God. And guess what? Oh, mm. uh, but but uh, you know the the reality here is is that Christ set the stage. He didn't say it as many words, but but John and Peter said it. Paul exampled it. You must do what you must do. I must stand here. This is what I've been called to do. And go. I'll tell you, I, I, I'll take this feeling of this context. Do I believe that it is okay to oppose the government in its position on abortion? Absolutely. Do I believe in, 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 in some cases that an actual sit-in might be necessary? I have no problem. But I will tell you something. I have a problem with the person in a sit-in who once arrested, told that they need to get up, have to be carried out. You know why? What if that officer who's simply being obedient to his superior has injured his back? because of my civil disobedience. There's a, there's, do you realize there's something wrong with that picture? So if I'm going to express my civil disobedience as a sit-in at an abortion situation, 
I'm not, I don't have a problem with doing that, but I have a problem with the idea that there's still a spirit of submission to the idea of who's in authority. The police officer comes, says, time, you know, get up and we're arresting you. Yes, sir. Stand before the judge. The judge says, you can't do this. If my conscience is standing there, I stand there and say, you must do what you must do. I have to stand where I have to stand. 30 days. Yes, sir. I don't know if this makes sense to you, whether it settles with you, but I want you to, to understand at least as much as I have wrestled with this, and this is not a new wrestling match, that we are called to set an example and a stage of what it is to look at God's order of things, and if God says he's put civil authority in its position to be in, for us to be in subjection to, then there's the first thing that has to be said is, I, I see it in his word, I need to apply it to my life, and it will start with simply obedience, because I don't always understand. Over the years, I think I've grown a little bit, at least to the point where I can say, I realize that I can be in submission and disagreement, but I have to be willing to receive the consequences of that and in such a way that reflects the mind of Christ and how he received the consequences, how Paul received the consequences, how John received the consequences, how Peter received the consequences, and they have set the stage for us. So, uh, you know, uh, you know it's, it's for me, it's, 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 again, coming to, to the picture of Christ and, and his position. Um, as we approach communion even, he, he's, he's stating everything that's going to happen ahead of time, tells you what he knew, and, and, and telling the, the disciples in this case, you know, uh, this, is not a, there, this isn't the place for an armed rebellion. And when Peter draws his sword, he says, Peter, this is neither the place nor the time for something like that. This isn't, this isn't the way we do things. Yeah. So uh, uh, I guess one of the things that I would say as you go into communion, one of the things we have to, to lay before God in the sense of our right and, and, and uh, as sin and, and everything else is, Lord, is my attitude towards government correct? My attitude towards the civil authority over me, correct. By, honor, by the way, there's two other words that I didn't even really get into. I did, there, some people have as many as 11 sermons on these seven verses. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think Jay, uh, Piper has four. Uh, Barnes has uh, three. I uh, can't remember. There's several others that have more. You know, and they go into a lot more detail in certain spots of this, but all coming to the same conclusion. But the other thing is respect and honor. Coming back to the sergeant who now salutes the officer that he has, you know, uh, raised up through boot camp, if you will. The position of, of, of officer that he now has uh, been commissioned as requires this man's submission to this one. He now takes orders from him, you know in the sense of if he's, especially if he's put in command over him for some reason. And uh, not only is there a 
sense of obedience. It's just a sense of respect and honor that uh, the, the military teaches that you're supposed to have. The, now, and, and quite candidly, even if you don't really care for your superior officer, are you allowed to be in opposition to him? What if you don't like the judge in the court that you just entered into uh, and when they say, I'll rise in honor of the judge? And you just don't care for his politics or his liberalism or anything else. What do you do? You stand up. Why? Are you honoring that judge at this point? No, you're honoring the order that God has put together in, in, this, in the state of California or in the, the nation of the United States and saying this is a person who's been put into order that, that we're in submission to. Uh, how many times over the years from both sides of the political party People say, for, and, and speaking of Christians, say, well, if, if, if George Bush walked into the, the room, I would never stand up. I disagree. Da, 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 da. Or if uh, Obama walked into the room, I would never stand up. You're in direct violation then of this scripture. You're not respecting or paying honor to the system that God has allowed. By the way, I don't care what your politics are. How did Obama get to office? God has allowed it. Is he a civil authority? He's the commander-in-chief of the United States. Am I in submission to him? Absolutely. Do I agree with him 100%? Absolutely not. Who knows? There may be a time where I have to stand on that. But always with a conscience of... of, of the idea of, 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 of submission from the heart ruling that situation even then. That makes, I hope this makes sense to you. Because we're certainly in a time where it pushes us as Christians every which way in our political structure of when to stand, where to stand, and how to stand. And I just want to encourage you, as you do, this is stuff you have to lay on the altar before God. And, and, and it's a matter of conscience and it's a matter of, of, of realizing there are some certain things that God has put in the line in, in, in the picture of this thing that we are called to be a testimony and a witness to the rest of the world. And we are obligated to that. And it impacts our relationship with him. And as a result, our relationships with each other. To ask the ushers to come forward to pass the communion out. Pass, uh, hold it until we've all been served and we'll share it together.
hung on the cross, the Father turned his face away. And it's just one of those things that hits you, maybe it's hit you before, resulting in the reality that he will never have to turn his face away from me. God turned his face from me towards me before the, the foundation of the world. And because he turned his face away from Christ, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I will never say those words. <laughs> I will never, they'll not be ever a part of my vocabulary. They'll never be necessary. Because his face is turned towards me and poured out his grace. The grace that Jesus 
purchased at that moment on the cross. He did it by coming in the flesh, emptying himself of his authority and his in his in his what should have been his right to have everything in submission to him he emptied and set aside in heaven as he became man and he became man 100% so that he could say at the at the supper he shared with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed as he took the bread giving thanks breaking passing it out to him this is my body physical real this is my body broken for you. And he asked us as often as we would share this bread together to do it in remembrance of him. But the reality wasn't just emptying himself and coming in the flesh. The reality was the necessity of a sacrifice that was fully human and fully perfect and therefore fully God at the same time. And a sacrifice wouldn't be sufficient unless it's poured out its blood, its life, to cover the sins. And so Jesus did that in our place so that the Father would always have his face toward us. And he asked us as often as we would share in this blood that he pictures now as that poured out for the purchase of the covenant. He asks us to share this, to do this as, in, in remembrance of him until he comes again. Father, again, thanking you. We ask you, Lord, to go with us. Cause us to be the men and, and women of God, the parents, the grandparents, the, the brothers, the sisters, the, 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 the children, uh, all of those things, the, the many hats that we wear, that we do them all in such a way as to bring glory and honor to you, including being the citizen of the nation that you put us in. And we pray for all of those who are in such far more distressing places, that you would be with them, walk with them, especially in those places where they're called to stand and possibly be putting their lives on the line to martyr for you, uh, and do so in such a way that it still brings glory and honor to you. And even as it did in the days of, of the first and second centuries, and third centuries, bringing even guards and, 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 and people in authority over them at that point to their knees and to you. Lord, uh, we, we submit with complete confidence to you, knowing that you are sovereign in all things, and because of that, we can rest with confidence in all that you have promised us, in spite of the way the world goes. We know the God of all creation is in charge. And the grace and the hope and the promise that you've given us through Jesus Christ and the cross is real and that we may rest in it with absolute, thorough confidence. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.